You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Triple Content Creations and Podcast Jukebox present Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. With your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie, if you want, for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout and you're going to type in DarkPod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, and you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off, and then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content Warning. The Language content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. 
Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark. My name is Andrew Gerza. I am your disabled Dick Smith, your disabled dreamboat. And I am here to remind you that disabled people are hot. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and shine a bright light on disability, sexuality, and everything in between. First things first, I want to give a shout out to one of our new Patreons who supports the show at $5. I want to give a shout out to the Lady Pim who pledged $5 a month recently to keep this show going, which is amazing. Thank you so much. Lady Pim is also going to be a future guest on the show and she's a pro dom a pro dom out of Toronto who I have fallen in love with. I was on her show. She also hosts the show The Bedpost. Yeah, she hosts a show called The Bedpost Podcast, which is an amazing sexual health and, and sex podcast and uh, sexuality show. And I've been on her show, and she was on mine recently, when it'll come out soon. I am the most excited for you to hear the episode with her because we review kink toys. So she pledged just now $5 a month to the Patreon, which means that she gets. The show one day early, so she'll get every show on Wednesday as opposed to Thursday. And she'll get an awkward shout-out like this. So, Aaron Pym, you are a lady after my own heart, Lady Pym. Thank you so, so much for your pledge. And at $5, Lady Pym, if you're listening, and if you want to, you can help me build an episode. So, if you pledge... $1 $1 a month, you get the show early and a shout-out. But if you pledge $5 a month, you also get the opportunity to build a show with me, which means we can do research together. We can talk about the things you want me to bring up that maybe I haven't before. You can tell me stories that I can incorporate into a show, stuff like that. You can really put your stamp on Disability After Dark and shine a bright light on the things you want to talk about. So if you want to, do, if you want to pledge to all that stuff, uh, patreon.com slash disability after dark also because I want to get some Minnesota started I want to do I want to do some call out for some episode ideas for Minnesota or Minnesota ideas rather so I'd love for you to tell me what about disability makes you the most anxious I don't think we talk enough about about disability and feelings and how disability really feels and what that means for us. So I want you to, to write in with a story about a time that you felt as a disabled person really anxious and really upset and really nervous, just nervous. And what what kind of was your, what was your disability reaction to those nerves and what did that make you feel and then how did you feel emotionally? I want to tap into that. So send me a funny, serious, not so funny story, uh, a sad story, uh, um, a laugh out loud story send me a story about a time when you were nervous as a disabled person and what that did to you and we'll put it in there as a Minnesota and if you're new and you're like well, Andrew what's a Minnesota I don't know what that is that's basically where I read back your stories to you and we speculate wildly and I give you advice and I get to hear your stories as a disabled person on the show through letters so you'll email those to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com and we'll do some more Minnesodes, where if I get more letters, we'll be up to doing Minnesota 26 really soon. So I'd love to have you involved in that. So send your send your stories about being anxious as a disabled person and what that means to you and what that felt like for you 
to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. On today's show, I sit down with a researcher from the Toronto-based Holland Bloorview Children's Rehab Hospital, and I'm really excited to do this because this researcher, her name is Dr. Amy McPherson, and she approached me a few months ago and said, I'm putting together a study to talk with disabled youth about what they wish healthcare providers would talk to them about or when it comes to sexuality. And I was like, that's a really cool study. I want to be involved. I want to help you. So we started working together. And one of the ways I said we could work together is hop around the show to talk about the importance of this study and what the show mean, what the what the study means and why we need to talk, to talk more with youth with disabilities around sexuality and also with healthcare providers to find out why they are apprehensive about talking about sex with with disabled kids and how do we change that conversation and how do we bring discussions of sexuality into discussions of rehabilitation and disability and how do we how do we infuse all that now also how do we combat ableism from within a rehab setting there's so much we talked about we talk about the study a little bit we talk about her experiences coming into the disability world she says that she really wasn't aware of disability up until 10 years ago when she started working in the field. Um, And so it was just a really interesting conversation because we talk also about how there's such a sparsity in the research. She's a researcher, so we talk about how the research around sexuality and disability is so sparse and so few and far between. And we look at the ways, we talk about the ways in which that could change and how that could change and how the research around disability might change in a couple of years, all these things. It was a really fun and important conversation. And if you're listening within the Toronto area, they are still looking for participants. They are still looking for people with feedback for this study to find out how we talk to disabled youth about sex and disability and what they want us to know. And also, how do we talk to healthcare providers about that? What What do healthcare providers need to know about sexuality and disability to have these conversations. So if you're listening from Toronto, send in your feedback. Hey, if you're not listening from Toronto, send in your feedback because maybe it'll be good. So, But this is a great kind of study because I think places all over the world that deal with disabled people need to engage in research like this to open up the conversation. So I'm really excited that I got to do this with her and uh, it was a really fun interview which you'll get to hear right now. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Amy McPherson from Holland Bloorview Hospital in Toronto talking about sex, disability and how to talk to how to talk to healthcare providers about sex, disability and youth. Right now on Disability After Dark. Dr. Amy McPherson, hello. Hello, Andrew. Hi, I'm so happy to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Really happy to uh, be on it. This is It's so cool because you, well, actually, before we get into why it's so cool, I want you to tell, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. So I'm a senior scientist at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital in the uh, Bloorview Research Institute. Um, And a lot of my work is around sort of uh, health promotion for kids with disabilities. Awesome. And so for people who are listening on the global scale who might not know what Holland Bloorview is, can you (laughs) want to just give us some background on that? 
Yeah, of course. So um, it's a, a rehabilitation hospital in Toronto, um, one of the first sort of teaching rehabilitation children's hospitals in Canada. Um, and we see kids with both visible and invisible disabilities and offer a range of outpatient services as well as we have three inpatient units too. Yeah, and and I, why I wanted to kind of get the background on that because when I was a kid, that's where I would go for pretty much everything from the time I was about... Well, from the time I was like two on, that's where I went for everything. Yeah, it was kind of the mecca. And I mean, it, it still sort of is. Like, I feel really lucky to have been able to go there because when you age out of, when you get, when you hit 18, that those systems aren't really available anymore. Um, at least when I was 18, it, once you hit 18, it stopped. So having kind of everything underneath one roof for your childhood was... I remember not liking it because I was the stubborn disabled kid that wanted to play and not, didn't want to go do the things that I had to do. But I le- looking back on it, I'm so lucky to have had those kind of resources all in one, sp- all in one place. Yeah, no, it's a great place. And um, I, I wish I could say to you that things had improved and that there are lots of adult services these days. Um, so it, I know yeah, you speak about how challenging it is accessing different services um, as an adult. Um, so a lot of the work we do is preparing young people to have the skills they need to go into adulthood. Not that that should negate having actual healthcare services, but we do a lot of that preparation work. Of course, yeah. I mean, I, I, I always would dream of, like, I remember when once I once I aged out and the system didn't work for me the same way anymore, I would always be like, oh, it wouldn't be great to have a center that's like Bloorview, but for adults, like, it would be, it would be, it would change the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could talk about that for hours because I, <laughs> yeah. I think it's, like, so important that we have those services and, and Bloorview really gave a lot of disabled kids uh, a leg up. And like I said, when I was a disabled kid, I didn't appreciate it. But now as an adult, I would really love services like that. But I I wanted to bring you on today because we are kind of co-working on this really cool thing together. And you brought me in as a consultant for that. So I I want you to, to introduce what it is, the kind of research you're doing and what you're working on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're thrilled to have you working on the project because it's, I know, a, a something close to your heart. Um, so we're working on a study looking at how healthcare providers, so it could be doctors, nurses, but could be other healthcare providers, um, can talk about sexuality with kids with disabilities. Um, we know it's something that's difficult to talk about at the best of times, um, and often those conversations don't happen for a number of you know reasons, uh, re- perfectly reasonable reasons. Um, but a lot of people tell us they either didn't have those talks, um, or from a healthcare provider point of view, they don't really know what to say, when to bring up, who to talk to about it, what words to use. So the project we're working on is um, trying to find out how can healthcare providers best talk about sexuality. Um, to uh, children and youth with disabilities. And that goes beyond sexual health, as important as it is, but is a bit more broader to look at sexuality um, sort of in a broader way. So how do you, when you say broader, like what, what are the, some of the parameters of that? So, I mean, I always think, so sexual health, um, as I sort of have a health promotion background, you always think of, you know, um, contraception and safe sex and screening, and those are all really important. Yeah. But but it's also talking about things like um, gender identity, gender roles, um, it could be relationships. Um, you know, it could be really broad about how we interact with other people, and sometimes it might be sexual, uh, and sometimes it might not, but it all adds to the idea of who we are and who we stand for and how we feel about ourselves and our body. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think it's so important to have the broader conversation with disabled youth and disabled kids about not just, like, here's what the sex act is, here's what you're going to do, but, like, how does that make you feel? And that's one of the things that I champion all the time on this show is, like, okay, yeah, we can talk about the sex for sure, but we can also talk about how all the stuff around it makes us Mm. feel. And I think for disabled kids, like, when I was a disabled kid, I I didn't ever talk about how how any of that made me feel like I went to health class and I watched a very heteronormative like, yeah. bunch of videos on like what sex was and I was like well I guess that doesn't apply to me because I'm I was realizing at the time I was queer and I was like I guess like oh, all right well this is not my experience so having discussions with kids about all that stuff kind of opens their world up a little bit and I would I would have I would have loved to have a study like this or some kind of outlet like this when I was a, a kid. Yeah, it's so important. And, um, you know, people say, well, you can't talk about sex with very small kids. And it's like, sure, but you can talk about appropriate and inappropriate touch. You can talk about exploring your body. You know, there's sort of developmentally appropriate ways that we can start talking to kids um, so that they have like a foundation. And as they grow older, they can build on that. And it slowly does become more sexual, perhaps. Um, But it's not that we're saying everybody should be talking explicitly about sex to every um, age. But how do we prepare kids um, for that and, and even just sort of to decide who they are and you know what feels good and whether or not they ever decide to interact with someone else you know it, all those things can't really be ignored yeah and I mean I think those are universal for kids whether you're disabled or, or not but like especially when it comes to uh, disabled kids I think it's so much more paramount because disabled kids are so mu- are, are so often um elevated to this angelic innocent (laughs) status where they can't have any kind of sexuality so to bring it in in a safe positive way where their body is you know respected and they're treated like a person and and it's something that they can celebrate if they choose to like that is a big step towards accepting disability overall i think yeah no i i agree and and even talking about body diversity you know something um in another chapter of my research I look at sort of weight management um, and really trying to push this body diversity which I think applies in many many different ways especially in the disability community about all bodies are beautiful we know everybody deserves to kind of have what they want Um, and we do you're right we do often think of people with disabilities um, as being asexual um, and sort of it not being you know relevant for them and really just trying to get rid of those conversations and talk really early about different bodies look different, feel different, work different, and then slowly build that, bring that into sort of a discussions around sexuality. Yeah, and I mean, just to bring back to your discussion of like asexuality, there may be disabled people out there in the world who are asexual. That's absolutely totally valid. But I think, I think we need to, and like if, if a disabled kid decides they don't want to have sex and they are asexual and that's their thing, great. But I think we need to make sure we talk about all that stuff so they Mm -hmm. can decide for themselves what they want to do. Yeah, if it's a choice, not a problem whatsoever, but we shouldn't be making assumptions for people. Yeah, and I think so often when we we talk to disabled kids or youth or even like disabled kids who are 16, 17, they're not given a sense of autonomy where they can make a decision for about the not even about sex just about their own body and just about who they are what they want to do if they want to do something reckless like they're not we don't allow disabled kids to take a risk mm-hmm. and, do, and do something 
do something quote unquote stupid because they want to, you know, because they want to. Sometimes you got to do that stuff. And I think the more and more we talk to disabled youth about stuff and we see that they're making mistakes, we see kind of their humanity come out. And that's so, so important. Yeah, many of us are very privileged to have grown up being able to make our own um, decisions and make those stupid mistakes and, um, you know, sort of learn through life, learn through doing. Um, and often we see with uh, the kids that we see at Holland Bloorview, they haven't had that choice. They haven't had the chance to maybe go to a sleepover um, or get a Saturday job or things like that, which help them, you know, have these experiences. Um, and because of the inaccessible world we live in, often that's not been an option for many of the kids. Yeah. Um, so we need to be a bit more proactive um, about providing those opportunities. And I do think that does relate to discussions about sex, because often they don't have the peers to discuss. You know, maybe they they don't go to the class at school about it. Um, so I think it all kind of melds together in a lack of opportunity to have just real life experiences and learn through doing. I mean, when I was a kid, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again if I did. When I was a kid uh, and we had sexual health class, I'm a nervous giggler, <laughs> so I would giggle out of nervousness at like the mention of body parts, and the I remember the the prof being like, hey. Andrew, if you don't stop giggling, we're going to have to remove you. And eventually they just removed me and let me do something else. But it it took me out of my, with my peer groups, I didn't learn about that stuff. So when it came time to do, like, testing and stuff and to, like, talk about this stuff, I didn't have a baseline because I couldn't stop giggling, partially mm -hmm. because of CP and nerves and partially because of, like, just I was a kid. I was gonna say you're probably a teenage boy, so you know. Yeah, everything <laughs> what was, they do best. It was funny, yeah. So like, I do think that there needs to be. I mean, I've advocated for this so much. There needs to be discussions of sexuality and disability in the classroom, like as a part of the curriculum. Period. Yeah, we've. I mean, we. I've spoken with um, young adults now who were actually told to leave the sex ed class because they it wasn't relevant to them. Or wow. They would, or they would never need it. That it wasn't relevant to them. That's horrible. Yeah. That's and they would they would never need the information. Oh my goodness! That, yes. Wow. That's what that's uh, that's the fire that keeps me burning for this topic. Yeah, I mean, of course, like obviously. So I, I'm really curious, though, with this study, with this kind of research that we're doing in this this study. I want. I'm curious. Like, what are some of the challenges for you of doing of getting this? study up and running like what are some of the, the things you have to think about to make this go and, and how has it been challenging or not challenging to do that yeah <laughs> so um so what we're going to do for this study it's a fairly small study it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sort of um uh, a launch pad for more work but the first studies we're doing we're going to have a focus group of healthcare providers um to talk about their experiences of um talking about sex with kids and uh, and children with disabilities. And then we're also going to interview or have a focus group panel of young adults with disabilities to talk about what they wish healthcare providers had talked to them about when they were younger. So lots of people have told us this this um, research is really badly needed. It's a really important topic. Um, but the challenge is always trying to recruit people who were, who are able and willing to talk to us about this. Um, and have a, a sort of a number of different logistical issues about getting to a place and, you know, being able to 
um, access somewhere um, that can come and um, and many, many other factors. So we're really struggling to recruit people um, because we really, really want to hear a real diverse um, voices on this topic. Do you think, and I know we've struggled with, with recruitment over the last few months trying to get it going, <laughs> do you think that it, it's struggling because people want to talk about sex but they don't, they're afraid? You know, I don't know. I think it's probably a combination of things. Um, I think you've made some really great um, observations around, you know, someone that might have to get their parents to bring them to Holland Blue View, and then how do they tell their parents what they're doing? You know, I think there are some logistical issues about people just accessing us. Um, maybe people feel uncomfortable, or maybe just people aren't hearing about it. So uh, we've we've tried to push it in many different channels, but um, we're hoping this will reach more ears. Um, and might um, might make pe- people feel that they'd like to contribute their dis- their thoughts, their experiences, or if they've got some really great ideas about what we should do. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wish that, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show, because I think <laughs> getting these topics, especially what I love about your work, and I've read some of the stuff you've done like outside of this and prep for today, I think it's really important that your work touches on this stuff and, and, is, and you work at a place where we're dealing with the disabled people of tomorrow, so you can, you, you know, you're able to help shape what they see and how they understand the world. And, how, and you're talking about stuff that when we do research on disability, this stuff is so sparse and so few and far between. Why do you think, like, as a researcher, what is it like to do research on this kind of stuff? Like, how do you feel when you do a paper on this or when you give a talk? Like, given that there's so few people actually talking about it but there's such a demand yeah that's a good question i mean and it's not just me there are other people across uh university of toronto who are doing fantastic work um on on this area as well like natalie rose um hi natalie (laughs) big up for natalie and tim um tim doesn't know me he's gonna wonder why i know him um (laughs) everybody knows him this is my friend him. Yeah. Um, and uh, Karen Ishida, her supervisor, you know, there are people doing this work, but it is difficult work. People, It is difficult for many people to talk about this. It does often fall down the priority list when you've got other things to talk about. You know, if a, if a young person, you know, needs physiotherapy and needs, you know, various other therapies or have concerns about continence and things like that, then often they take precedence. Um, and there's no, not saying that they shouldn't. We just need to figure out so how do we build in though time to talk about some things that might be very impactful for someone's life but aren't traditional rehab kind of treatment or services i mean i've talked to a lot of people on this show about incontinence during sex so like topic (laughs) so like part of me is like why don't we talk about incontinence and or continence you know during sex because that kid is going to want to know in in five in if that, if that kid is, say, 15, in five or six years when they start becoming sexually active with somebody, if they're also worried about incontinence, then, you know, those conversations are paramount because they're not going to want to worry about their incontinence when they're trying to have sex with somebody for the first time. So I think there's a way, I don't know how we link it, but I do think there's a way to link those two conversations together. Oh, for sure. And it probably sounds odd, but I really like this topic <laughs> because it, no one talks about it. Um, and we did actually a study a few years ago about how people with disabilities talk to their, oh, actually spina bifida specifically, um, because of the sort of um, issues around often around incontinence. Um, and how did they talk to their partners about it? Or how did, how did they plan to talk to their partners about it? 
you know, and some people were like, well, I told them up front because they needed to know, you know, this might happen. And then other people who said, I didn't say anything until it happened, you know, because they didn't know, they didn't want to be rejected. And so I think we have so much work to do. Like, incontinence is another taboo, right? Yeah. Um, to talk about maybe even more than sex. Um, and so we need to build this these conversations in about this kind of um, in, maybe embarrassing stuff that no one wants to really acknowledge, but is part of everyday life and has such a massive impact on everyone's lives. Yeah, I just think that I think that the more the OT and PT world can connect what they're doing to like I've said on the show a number of times, like if you told me that if I did PT, I was going to have better sex as an adult, I probably would have done better, more PT. Like, I, If you told me that I could masturbate if I did this exercise when I was 14, I probably would have done it. Because a big, it, bigger motivator, hey? Yeah, because it would have meant that I would have gotten off and enjoy myself rather than being told, do it and you're handling it better because I didn't see any result when I was a kid because I was yeah. a kid. But if you told me that if I did this, I could give myself pleasure, it might have changed the game. Mm, that's, mm, that's interesting. Okay, I have some PTs to talk to. <laughs> I mean, I think I just think it's an area. And I also think PTs are, are afraid to broach the subject and healthcare providers are afraid to broach the subject because there is obviously a boundary when you are a healthcare professional. There's a, there has to be clear-cut boundaries, of course. So when you start talking about sex, even if it's from a professional way, there's like a fear that you're going to overstep somewhere. And I think we just need to talk about it more, especially with youth, because we don't want kids who are t then turn 18, 19, 20 going to have sex that is going to be unsafe and unpleasurable for them because they weren't given the tools to do that. Absolutely. Um, and obviously consent is a huge piece as well. You know, that we it has become part of the sort of main conversation recently, which is great. I mean, people are worried uh, or do get worried that people with disabilities will be um, exploited. Um, and I think that is a legitimate conversation. I don't think we should only think that. Yeah. Um, but I think everybody needs to talk and think about consent, um, whether you have a disability or not. But um, if we're not having the conversations about sex and how can we talk about consent and safe relationships um, and advocating for yourself um, and all the many other things that come with safe, satisfying relationships. Yeah. And we need to we need to talk about all <laughs> those things because we're not we're so. I see it with parents all the time when we talk about sex and disability with kids. They stop at, my kid's vulnerable. Yes, mm -hmm. that's true, they are. But they're, they're more vulnerable if they don't have information. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we have to take a balanced approach. I think we have to acknowledge that there are people out there that might exploit people with disabilities. Um, and yet I think we can have a really productive, useful conversation about consent more generally um, that people can apply to different areas of their life, including um, sort of sexual contact, sexual relationships. In your research, I am just curious, and this is a question I didn't write down. This is a question <laughs> I had right now. In your research, when you look at consent and disabled kids, like, is there anything about that there? So we haven't looked at this deliberately. I mean, what I can can say is there's very little about kids and sex conversations um, in the literature. Um, so a lot of the consent is around people with um, invisible disabilities, for example, um, acquired brain injury and things like that. Um, so it's a bit of a mixed bag out there. Um, we can definitely do some more research to inform ourselves, though. So with this study, are we looking at, I don't know if you've, I don't, can't remember if you mentioned it at the top. Are we looking at um, 
both invisible and physical disabilities in this study? Or? Yes, yes, we are. We wanted to be inclusive. Um, I mean, I think there may be some differences or some things, other considerations, but we really want to have people tell us what they are. Yeah, totally. And I, and I think, and so these, this kind of, this focus group that we're doing that's coming up soon, by, yes. the, by the time people listen to this, it will have passed already, but it's coming up soon in the real world. Uh, so is it going to be in person? Is it going to be... It's going to be online a little bit too. So um, our first, yeah, our first focus group, we have some people who are going to be there in person and some people who are going to join us by Zoom. Um, and But if people listening to this um, want, think they have stuff to say um, and they want to take part, then we are definitely open to holding um, another kind of online um, Zoom focus group with people just to try and make sure that people it's, it's accessible and it's easy for people. So um, I, I think your page will leave my details. Um, so if people listening to this have lots of things to say, then I would just say, please contact me. And if there's enough people who are interested, we can totally talk about doing maybe another, another discussion group. And if people are not in the Toronto area listening to this, this would also be great for anybody who is interested in this stuff and wants to maybe start a focus group of their own, any of the PTs and OTs or, or, or researchers in other parts of the world that want to do this. It's so sorely needed that, that this could be a good jumping off point for that. Yeah. So um, if any, so yeah, we can have anybody in Ontario. Um, that people do have to be in Ontario, but any young adults um, in Ontario um, between eighteen and twenty-five, if they wanted to take part, um, we could do an online um, group with them. Um, and then, yeah, any healthcare providers, if they're interested, then definitely get in touch. Fantastic. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit because I am curious. What is your experience, uh, Amy, with disabled people in your personal life? Yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking about this question. So before I moved to Canada 10 years ago, I really had really none. I work with kids with chronic illnesses, so like asthma and diabetes and so on. So my my world of disability started in 10 years ago. Uh, and since that, I've been seeing more and more in my personal life. Um, so I have a, a good friend who um, uses a, a, a power chair. And I have been shocked whenever we've been trying to arrange venues for a party or meet for drinks, how many are inaccessible. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, that, that this will come as zero shock to you. It's like, <laughs> mi it's most... like minus five, the shock. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah. And most people are listening. But I think it's not until you sort of see it, walk it through someone else's eyes. You know, um, you know, I was trying to find a birthday venue for myself and it, I, we had to go through many different choices um, before we found one that she could get into. And I was very happy to do so. But um, but the most shocking thing was then she couldn't go to the washroom all night. Ugh. So since then, I've noticed whenever we go out, she nurses one drink. And it's only recently that I've realized why is because, yes, she could get into the thing, but she couldn't get to the washroom. And so she had to manage her fluid intake. And I, it sounds so simple, so obvious, but it was something that just really floored me. It's so funny because managing the fluid intake is literally the whole experience of my teenage years. Yeah. Um, yeah. The whole experience of my from about 16 to about 20 well, to about now, actually, until I started having to use the catheter, I would really, I wouldn't drink and I would totally dehydrate because yeah. that was more comfortable than having to pee and not being able to. Yeah, absolutely. And another work of mine with spina bifida, um, 
who often have incontinence issues, you know, this is what we hear. They eat and drink for continence. They don't eat and drink for health. And so the nurse can talk about all the, or whoever, all of the, you know, you should be eating this and should be drinking this much. They're not going to, if, it's, if they're going to risk uh, an accident at school. Yeah, right? and Other things take priority. Like I think we need to talk, I think just to kind of move it back to kids a little bit, I think we need to talk to kids about that stuff too. And like, because yeah. when I was a kid, it was so traumatic to be to have an accident or to have to have your mom like I remember when I was a little kid when I was like no when I was actually a teenager like 14 15 grade 9 grade 10 and having like kids having an accident and having to have call my mom in like the office and be like hi mom I had an accident mm-hmm. <laughs> I need you to like come and bring me a pair of clothes and then the, the attendant worker or the EA, the educational assistant, would be with me and they'd have to change me. It was a whole thing. And your friend saw you go in this big, like, unmarked, accessible bathroom <laughs> that looks like a scary room that no one knows what it is. But there you are in this room. So it takes away from, like, it makes you feel so shamed. And I think if we talk to disabled kids about, hey, if you have an accident, you're still a good person. You're still cool you'll still have friends like yeah we really need to start and i think we need to talk to non-disabled kids about you know what happens if you have an accident so that it's normalized in a way that makes everyone feel comfortable yeah i agree it's a it's a really difficult topic and it's a topic kids often don't want to engage in um and for for reasons that you know yeah embarrassment and shame bullying we we saw incontinence was a huge cause of bullying um yeah you don't want to go into the special needs toilet you know marked um you don't want to go out of the classroom and come back wearing different clothes you know all of these things are kind of feel like social death to young kids um and for good reason because people kids are also cruel and it was actually like it was the worst. I remember, I remember one particular time where I had to totally get changed twice in one day, and like I remember some kid was like, "Why did you change your clothes?" And I, I was like, "Ah," uh, and I made up a story. But I was like, "Ah, uh, just because I wanted cooler pants or something." Yeah. <laughs> and you like, I, I can't imagine how many kids have to make up stories like that just to feel like they're okay when they could. When we sh- they should just say, hey, I had an accident, but I had to change. Yeah. And I think this does link into what we're talking about, sexuality and how you feel about your body, how comfortable you are with your body. Um, you know, it, these are all precursors to that sort of that sexuality piece as well. I mean, to bring it to sexuality, also when I was a kid, like, I would sometimes have premature ejaculation because I couldn't stimulate. And so I would have, that would happen to me during the day. Sometimes that happens now. And there's still, because we didn't talk about, like, accidents and how they're okay when I was a kid publicly (laughs) we didn't talk about it publicly there is still a shame of like oh that happened someone has to take care of me now and it's like that does bleed into adulthood and that that can affect you when you're an adult so like we do need definitely to talk about it from the time we're young Mm -hmm. I agree yeah do you have any more uh, experience with disabled friends you want to share about in your personal life um let me think. I mean, just things like when the new subways got released and, you know, the fact that it had someone had to point out to me that they didn't level with the, the platform and they were actually really hard to get into. Wow, they're um, so dangerous. I yeah. have almost fallen down those a number of times. 
Yeah, I mean, I just, um, I'm just always aware of of my my privilege and um, how I don't see the world in the same way as, as some of my friends, and just sort of trying to learn from that. Really, they uh, they're, they're excellent teachers, <laughs> but uh, that also that, that also sounds. Like, I don't want to deify them, you know, make them into something they're not, but because um, they're cool, funny, smart as heck, yeah. um, and they happen to get around the world in a in a different way. And and sometimes in a way that can be frustrating too because like they just want to like your poor friend with the beer she probably wants to have more than one beer or more than one I'm drink. Sh- I'm sure knowing her I'm sure she does. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I I also ha- I know I know you're from the UK so can you kind of share with us like what is did you did you have any experience with disability when you were over there? shockingly little actually um as i said professionally i was involved in sort of kids with chronic conditions such as um asthma and diabetes um and but the focus of that was really helping people feel in control uh, of themselves that they could make decisions that they could look after themselves um, giving them the tools to look after their conditions and i think a lot of that does kind of um, come over and has blended in with my work over here but I really walked around the world in the UK with um, with not much of a, a lens to disability and so I had a lot of quick learning to do when I came over came over here <laughs> I can imagine I just I find that surprising because I know that the UK is like a, a, a hotbed of like disability activism when you start when you start looking at the people that are over there there's... well i learned that once i moved to canada i learned that about <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean there's so once i started looking there's so many people over there that are doing great work so um but i'm glad that you came over here and started learning and i think it's important to, to recognize too that like when you don't understand disability it's a huge learning curve and it's what, is there moments when you were learning that you were like, oh, I really messed that up, or I said the wrong thing, or oh, it, that feels weird? Is there moments when you had to like confront your own kind of ableism around that and try to make it through? God, uh, every day still. Um, you know, what, so it's difficult to know sometimes what to do f- for the best, you know, yeah. and um, we all love this, like, give me a set of rules that I can follow. So for example, on this podcast, you'll call it, you're saying um, disabled kids. Um, my, the way I speak usually is kids with disabilities. Yeah. Um, and I totally understand like the difference between the two and the arguments. I, it's just something I feel more comfortable with. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, well, um, should I be changing my language? You know, I, I try and be responsive to the person I'm talking to. Yeah. Um, and if they felt very strongly absolutely so things like that even now 10 years in I'm still questioning and conscious and still learning um, about and then how we work with how we work with kids as well with different abilities and and how we um, make sure they're empowered and uh, sometimes it doesn't come naturally because I haven't had I don't have that lived experience which I hope I'm always really clear about and I think you know I think that's really important I think and I love how you are very frank about how like you're not you're not championing these this work to deify a disabled person yeah you fully understand your privilege you fully understand that you're coming in with with no lived experience (laughs) but you just want it you want to use your your expertise to make a change in the world i think we as disabled people also have to remember that there are really good non-disabled people trying to do good stuff who sometimes might make mistakes and falter and say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing because identity politics can be really 
tough to navigate sometimes. Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. But I always try to remember that like non-disabled people are doing good stuff too. It's like it, they're just trying to learn this thing. And, and I don't think we have a responsibility to teach non-disabled people all the things. I think there's an opportunity there and wherever I can, where I see there's no malice, I want to take it. So if there's ever a moment where you want to learn stuff, I can help you with that. That's awesome. And that's why we want to work, wanted to work with you on this topic, um, because I'm very aware I, I identify as a, a white, middle class, uh, straight female. Um, <laughs> and on the topic of um, sexuality, I do not represent everyone. In fact, you know, so again, it's trying to work with and partner with people who do have different lived experience to me and like, let's work together. Let's bring kind of all our brains together to figure out how, what we can bring that can be helpful and, and where do we need to then pass on to other people who may have more lived experience. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think it's all about passing the torch. I do want to ask you kind of a more research-based question. Sure. In your research about this stuff, how do, how do you find disability is kind of talked about? Is it really clinical, medicalized, pathologized? Um, definitely in kids. Um, I mean, there there is a whole other sort of wing of research that I find fascinating, but I, I cannot say I work in it, sort of the critical disability studies, yeah. um, which um, really questions the sort of a lot of assumptions and ableism um, and is fascinating. I would say in more children and young people, it's very medicalized, it's very sexual health. How can we get people to, you know, use protection, you know, against sort of um, sexually transmitted diseases? How can we make sure people don't get pregnant? What's the age of first intercourse? These, these are the these are the titles I can see streaming in front of my eyes, you know, <laughs> like, what is the age of first intercourse for people, you know, young women with and without disabilities and, and a very much a sort of a sex ed, sex health um, approach. And, and I've, I've never really seen anything for young people that has actually talked about sexuality more broadly. There's one or two people out there who are doing good work. Um, there's a researcher called Orchard, um, who's done some great work in East, um, but it, there's very little in the younger years of, and how we can build um, build people's sort of um, foundations. So if you were to write, and I know you're, you're like eyeball deep in abstracts right now, so I don't want to make you do more work than you need to, but if you were to like, think of a, a cool title for like a, a pretend paper on this stuff that you would want to have researchers read what would you if you give me like a quick possible title of a title you want to see out there um so, well i'm going to cheat and tell you the title of something i've already published all right <laughs> I can't think of anything better um but it started off as let's talk about sex so i'm a girl of the 80s i loved salt and pepper um <laughs> And every time I think about this topic, I think about that song. And uh, yeah, we did call a paper that. And then I found out afterwards that we weren't the first. There are many others called that. So I'm clearly not as original as I thought I was. Um, so I'm still looking for catchy titles and um, will, will gladly receive any suggestions from people. So if anybody out there is a wordsmith. Yeah. Um, they've heard me call myself Dick Smith on the show a lot. <laughs> So, uh, but if anyone's out there, a Dick Smith and a Wordsmith and wants to s submit ideas, because I think, I think 
when it comes to disability research, everything that I've read just generally on disability research is very dry. It's very clinical. It's very it's not fun. And I think we need to infuse in the research world when we're talking about disability, there needs to be some some humor, some levity, some like not necessarily raunch, but some comedy in the fact that this is the, the, these are what real disabled people are, are talking about and how they talk on a day-to-day basis, which is why on this show, like, sometimes I can get pretty, I get pretty expressive because I think people need to hear us and hear us talk about this stuff really plainly. Yeah, and I think that, that really lends itself to this sort of... Um, sort of what, what's really common around you know knowledge translation so it's this idea of like how can we take, we take research evidence but make it useful for different people and different audiences and how do we get that into real life so yes I have to write these papers um, that's part of my job but it's but that's one audience um, in one particular way so how can I transform that into something that's way more um, approachable and as you say has a bit of levity and is um, catchy um, maybe it's a one side like you know it's an infographic maybe it's a, a podcast <laughs> maybe you know so I think we're being encouraged to be more and more creative about how we communicate scientific uh, research and findings so that it really gets to the people who need it most yeah and I think the way the world is changing with social media and all those things you have to be snappy and quick and like yeah, and it doesn't come naturally to me <laughs> as a researcher. I like what read, you know, writing really long-winded things, and so it's a it's a skill I am working on for sure. Yeah, no, I know. I did academia for for ten years. Like yeah. I did my master's and BA, so I know how to write a nicely, like a really rich, like a lot of flowery language to make it sound really cool and really like because that's what they teach you when you're doing academic writing, especially around disability. It's like I'd be really like really succinct but also really flowery and also really like like intense wording and so when when you go into the real world it's it's like 280 characters and that's it yeah yeah i i need to have employ someone to help me with my twitter because my twitter game is not good um but um i were definitely definitely looking at it and actually some of the people on our team um are actually sort of what we call knowledge brokers or knowledge translation specialists um and so they are absolutely invaluable in helping us think about different ways of communicating messages to different audiences um so i am massively indebted to them and um people like yourself who um, are more savvy in that way and can help us as scientists like get out the information that we really want to push out to as many people as possible. If you were to tell other people who I'm going to kind of I'm going to like I'm going to go around a few questions and then come back. (laughs) You're going Um, off notes now. Yeah so if you were to tell uh, some researchers in your field if you were to give them advice on how to start talking about sex and disability what advice would you give them? Um, well, don't be afraid to talk about it. For a start, use the words. <laughs> We're all grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but also, I mean, I think the number one thing is to um, identify for yourself who you represent, uh, who you are, and then get other people who um, come from different 
like backgrounds and lived experiences and just talk to people because I can sit in my office and construct a nice argument or grant about what I'm going to do, but it's, it's meaningless unless it's informed by people who it's affecting. Yeah. And so I guess number one is, yeah, a talk, talk about the words, um, but then also talk to people who have that lived experience and help them guide you and you can add your expertise you know everyone has an expertise right so it's about kind of how do we all work together to make sure what we do is impactful and means something fantastic i am curious though in in your in kind of at holland blur view are there more and more people working there who are disabled Oh, that's a good question. We do um, see a lot of, um, we have a lot of disabled volunteers and many youth who have um, aged out of it but want to come back and volunteer. So that's um, awesome. They're also soon creating an alumni network, um, which I think will be a, a great um, connection sort of network of people who have been through Holland Bloorview and want to do other things and we can consult them and ask for their opinion and things like that. Um, we are, we, I mean, we certainly, um, with the um, recent employment of, we, well, it must be about a year ago now, we have now a new diversity director, and she's really pushing um, sort of up the limits around or pushing us to always think about how we can include more diversity in our, in our workforce. Yeah, because I, I just think in this space, if disabled kids saw other disabled people kind of giving them this advice, it might stick better and it might hold more uh, not more or less value but it, well maybe because if I saw some, a wheelchair user when I was a kid telling me to do my physio yeah I, I might have listened better yeah and we do have some we have some um uh, I forget the official title, but sort of um, young adults who come back and we have one in the spina bifida clinic, one in the CP, you know, who are there for that exact reason to sort of talk to young people and say, hey, I have been where you, you are and this is what I've learned kind of thing and give that advice from someone who truly does know um, and isn't just a physiotherapist or a nurse or a doctor or OT saying this is what the manual says you should be doing, um, which I think is it's hugely valuable. But we need to match that with, you know what, this is what it's like in the real in the real world. Well, I think the manuals need to be written by disabled people. <laughs> and then, you know, I'll probably listen to the manual. Um, uh, I also wanted to ask you, though, just generally, what do you think is missing just just generally when we look at how we treat disabled kids today? How do you, like, what What do you think is missing? I mean, we've kind of touched on this before, but if you could, like, distill it down into, like, a soundbite for me. Oh, um, I think I've already told you this is not my strong suit, <laughs> but I'll try for you for sure. You can ramble, though. You, we have time. Ramble away. Okay. Well, um, I think we've spent a really long time talking about independence um, with kid, with disabled kids. Um and I think that has lots of merits, but I think sometimes it leads to disabled kids thinking they have to do absolutely everything themselves. Yeah. And then when it doesn't happen, either feel disappointed or exhaust themselves from trying to do everything. Yeah. And not feel they can ask for assistance in any way. Um, and so I think um, pushing the independence kind of um, topic for kids with disabilities, ha you know, has has done some good. I think we need to now talk more about interdependence, like all of us rely on other things and other yeah. people through our daily life, whether we have a disability or not. Um, you know, I, I, I need to, you know, I get my boyfriend to do things for me and my friends. And, you know, I have different things at home to help me 
you know do the day um so i think we need to be talking more about interdependence and so you know get people to to identify what's really important for me to achieve today what do i want energy for what can i sort of get people to help me with so you know it may be what you know, maybe it doesn't have to take me two hours to get dressed and then I don't have time to do whatever, you know? Um, I think that's so valuable. I just think that's so valuable because you're right. When I was, when I was a disabled kid, um, I would, you know, I'd have to do something and it would take me forever. Mm. But because the idea of independence that everybody around me was taught and was teaching me was that you had to do it totally, completely by yourself. Yeah, and and I think it was well-meaning. I think the people did good intentions, but I think it has led to people not wanting or seeing that asking for any kind of assistance is somehow failure. Um, And I just don't think that's probably how people will get the best out of their lives um, if they feel they can never ask for assistance in different areas. And it's about making choices and being autonomous and, you know, doing that decision making for themselves. So there's no one saying, oh, let me help you with this. It's them, them identifying this is important to me. This is what I can kind of get someone to help me with. Um, I'm still going to choose what to wear. It might just mean someone else might help me put it on. Yeah, exactly. And I got to say, as a disabled adult, (laughs) when someone says, I'm going to help you with this, I go, great, cool, (laughs) sure, thanks. Like, it doesn't deter me when someone's going to help you because then I think, great, it'll get done faster and then I can do move on to other stuff that I want to do or have to do. Yeah, yeah, no, which is a great, great learning for you. For you. Uh, and I'm sure you probably want, could have learned that earlier, you know, and would have made life a bit easier. Um, so I think we do in rehab, we're very much in, um, independence, everything's possible. Um, and I think those are great messages, but we need to somehow sometimes sort of temper them with, and it's fine if you don't get it yeah. all yourself on your own with no help. What do you think about the the kind of the the overarching message that we give to disabled kids where we say everything is possible because I have thoughts on that. My thoughts are like I think we need to start teaching disabled kids that you know what sometimes things aren't possible and that's totally fine too. Yeah, I mean <laughs> the last 10 years has I've learned as I say I've learned a lot. <laughs> um and I've read some interesting things and talked to people and, you know, this idea of sort of um, disabled kids being poster children, like actually literally <laughs> um, on posters <laughs> in bus shelters, um, you know, sort of saying anything's possible. I, I, th- I think I, it's generated good. I think it's generated helpful um, um, money and funding, which is always really important. Um, I think sometimes maybe it's opened the world for people who didn't think they were able to do anything at all because of a disability. Um, but again, I think we have to be careful in um, giving that message to everybody across the board. Yeah, I think so too. I do, and I think we need to change the messaging to start. And I've started doing it in a lot of my work, just saying, you know what, if you don't, you can't do something that doesn't invalidate your personhood. It for doesn't, sure, sure. Like it doesn't invalidate. Like if you can't do something as a result of disability, it doesn't mean that you failed, or maybe you did fail. And failure is not bad. Yeah, failure is really important, actually, you know, for um, developing resilience. Um, And that can be sort of the flip side is that sometimes we don't let disabled kids fail at anything. Um, Often because, you know, they have, oh, they have too many challenges as it is. And, you know, but not providing that opportunity to fail. And sort of this circles back to our early conversation about having the opportunity to try things and have those real world experiences. And some of them will be 
positive and some of them you, you will fail but we've all had to fail to learn how to live as adults yeah. so i think that's an interesting that's an interesting subplot to this everything is possible um where we need to let people fail at some things and i completely agree with you that that doesn't invalidate somebody if they happen to fail at something because we all fail at things it's also how i feel about the only disability you have is a bad attitude it's like well but no no, my legs really do, you know, <laughs> are really have spastic um, muscles, you know, yeah, it's, um, I, I think we just have to be careful because I think the more we, we promote that anything is possible, it makes kids who are unable to achieve that everything they want to live and dream can, can um, feel really terrible for yeah. them. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to shift gears back to the, the research a little bit. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit about who is on the team and who is working with you. Yeah, so I have a dream team on this project. I work with awesome people, but this team in particular is fantastic. So my first success was getting you to sign up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was super pleased about that. Um, I think it brings such a valuable perspective. Um, we have um, the mother of an eight-year-old um girl with a disability to provide a bit of a family perspective and I love the perspective she brings she's like hey we come here and talk to healthcare providers you know we need them to know their stuff so I want to be sure that they know their stuff so she brings a really cool perspective on um, what parents feel and and want Um, we have a load of knowledge translation um, gurus as I was saying earlier and they've been really helpful in like distilling messages and they created this amazing video um, which we use as our application which was a really cool uh, application because we actually got our money from an accessibility fund um, because we argued that the lack of information around sexuality was an accessibility issue and a a rights issue good good so um, and we have um, a nurse and therapist, Karen Gan, who is phenomenal. She's been doing this work for years. She's hugely experienced. She works with um, kids with um, acquired brain injury, and she's very experienced in this area. I learn a lot from her all the time. Um, and we've had students who have popped in and out and done pieces for us as well. And so I really like that piece of advocating for this topic in our, our students who sometimes don't know what's hit them when I say, hey, you're coming to a meeting with me. Um, and then I get them to do a piece of the work. So thinking about that next generation of researchers as well and how we can kind of bring them into the fold. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's everyone on our team. We're, we're an amazing stellar team. I mean, that's, that's, so, that's so good to hear. And I love the family piece. And two questions came out into my mind when you were talking. Question, hey. question one was, what do you think the next phase of disability research is going to be like on this topic uh, or just disability generally like if you were because th- you're talking about the future of researchers mm. so if you were to like mold because you are helping to mold and shape the future if you were to think in like the next 20 years what do you think disability research will be talking about Ooh, so that's a, a huge question. I'm going to cheat a bit and just keep off to my <laughs> to my field, uh, my area. But so when I think about health promotion, um, you know, we talk about people eating properly and um, having clean water and you know having um, pro- uh, having protected sex and you know they're these sort of topics that are quite common, but we don't talk about the taboo topics. Um, and that is one of the, so sexuality might be one. Um, I'm doing a bit of work around mental health. Um, I say I've worked around sort of um, weight management. Um, and 
I just what an incontinence. So I think my ethics board at the hospital like kind of groan whenever they get an application from me because they're always on some like super sensitive topic um, that they don't haven't seen before but um but i what i would love to see is how can we talk about these taboo topics and make sure that kids with disabilities are part of that conversation and they're not being forgotten um, and excluded and that we think to bring them in and and really work with them on the areas of life that's that's truly important to them do you think in 20 or 30 years when we do research on disability we'll actually reach a place where ableism is not a problem I would love to say yes. I think it's that how how confident are you that in the world generally ableism isn't a problem in twenty years time? I mean, I don't think it's going to be eradicated. I just, I just wanted to see if you had like a cool <laughs> research idea of how it could, like. I think, we, I think we have to be conscious of it in everything we do. Yeah. Um, I think we need like true partnership in studies and not just like, oh, we've got this person on our team, checkbox. You know, I think we need to um, be advocating and go, like when we go to conferences and when we get, write papers, you know, publishing them in places that don't generally have maybe have disability research. Yeah. Um, so, for an example, like I've been trying to publish my papers around kids with disabilities and weight management in, I'm using air quotes, mainstream, what would be considered obesity journals, but publishing them there because they don't normally mention disability. And then I can kind of, it's a way of promoting my agenda yeah. and sort of a bit of an awareness raising. I think that's um, really important because so much of disability research stays in disability circles and no one else hears about it. So I think that's, that's yeah. a great tactic and way to do that. So that's been sort of one strategy I've been using. So things like that, I think we can do. And now I would, um, it's actually good timing because Holland Bloorview has just launched the next phase of their Dear Everybody campaign. I don't know if you've seen it. There's I've heard about it. Yeah, it's where it's where somebody writes a quote about, about something about disability and they put it out. So that was the first year. Yeah. So it was basically kids with disabilities sort of wrote something they wanted other people to know about about them and disability. Um, and it's been through a sort of a few years. So this, I think, is the third year. But um, this is about they're really promoting or advocating for people with different differences being um, in advertisements in on television in paper and you know like really showing the disability community in yeah. all their diverse glory you know just in everyday situations um you know in streetwear that looks cool in you know in a um a, a, a film or a movie when it's not all about their disability and oh what a shame you know overcoming something yeah. you know how do we integrate our full diversity of humanity into the things that we see every day and i think if we can also sort of have that in mind um as well as the research um you know it would be nice to think that we might uh move the dial i i mean i hope so and that kind of leads into my last question which was how do you think we can combat ableism from within the rehab view and i think i think you've just kind of sh shared how we can do that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's you know, we it's not going to disappear overnight, but I think it really needs um, that that advocacy piece and and really going out into the real world. And it, it's funny, some people call Holland Bloorview, you know, the coolest hospital no one ever knows about or something. You know, people are flabbergasted when they come across us and, and so I think there has to be a lot more outreach and I mean we have an amazing team that do that already, but um, just trying to get people into just everyday 
everyday things so that it doesn't become this weird, strange, difficult to talk about, um, you know, situation for people that people just feel comfortable because they've seen that in everyday life. Do you think because Holland Lorview is a, a children's rehab center, do you think there will ever be a time where they might say, hey, we can also make money if we cater to adults? Um, I think that's a whole discussion with the <laughs> Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, where we get our funding, a lot of our funding from. Um, I mean, what we have done over the last few years is develop, well, we've had transition clinics for quite a while and transition as in moving from childhood to adulthood. Sorry. That's okay. um, so, uh, you know, we've been working with kids um, from about 14. They start seeing kind of an adolescent medicine person, a nurse practitioner, a life skills coach. Um, and then we've been partnering with adult um, uh, services such as like Lindhurst and um, Ann Johnston Health Station um, to so that that person can carry on seeing the same people up to about age 25, but they see them in an adult setting. Um, so that's kind of been kind of neat. And, and the idea is to also build capacity in adult healthcare providers as well so that they're not so, I don't know, scared or worried or ill-equipped to accept um, adults with disabilities as, as patients. Yeah, and I think like I, my GP, she's young and she's hip and she's cool. She doesn't know a lot about disability, but I learn with her when I go in there. And I love doing that because she doesn't know a lot and she know, she'll tell me that. Yeah. And I, that There's something so much more positive about going to a doctor's office and having them tell you they don't know anything. And part of me is like, good, we can learn together. Let's. Yeah. And there, so I think. Yeah. And we've heard, you know, we've heard, um, you know, people who like, they go to their GP, they're like, you know, I've got an ear infection. Can I have some drops? And they're like, oh, well, I don't treat spine bifida. And they're like, no, but really, I just have an ear infection, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Um, you know, so I think, and I, and I think people do, uh, people worry about their experience and expertise, and I can totally see how that would happen, you know, that sort of um, feeling really ill-equipped to talk about these things or work with people with disabilities. So uh, while I have a certain sympathy or, or rather empathy maybe for them, then, I, but it's not good enough, <laughs> you know, people, we need to provide care, it's a human right. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've got to work with adult providers, I think, to um, provide good quality um, joined up care. Um, we're not there yet, um, but I know a lot of people are working towards that. This was an. Um, this is such a really fun conversation. And <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time tonight to sit with me and have a chat. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that anybody in on, in Ontario, particularly Toronto, listening, uh, get in touch with Amy and us about this thing because we want your feedback. Definitely. No, this has been a blast. Thanks so much, Andrew. Anytime. Um, how, but how do people, how can they get a hold of you? And I'm going to put in the show notes, but just so they hear you say it, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah, so probably best way, give me an email. It's um, A. McPherson, so that's A-M-C-P-H-E-R-S-O-N, at hollandblowview.ca. Perfect. And I'll make sure that's in the show notes. Um, yeah. And this, this is going to be out on the 12th, so if you're listening... It's the 12th. Uh, <laughs> and you'll be in England, so have an amazing time. I am so excited. I can't wait. But yeah. this was amazing, and thank you so much, Amy. It was so fun to talk to you, and I want to have you. I want to work with you on other stuff, so we'll, figure, we'll talk. Awesome. Well, I'll hold you to that, so be careful what you say. All right, good. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right, friends. That's another episode of Disability After Dark. 
the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. My name is, of course, Andrew Gerza, and thank you so much for listening and helping the show go. I really appreciate that you all listen and that you come back every week, and I love doing it, and I love shining a bright light on these topics, so thank you. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com where you'll find my writings, some cool videos I've been in, and you'll see where I've been talking, where I've been doing talks, and if you want to hire me to talk, you can do so there as well. If you want to follow me on the social media, you can put in all my handles on Insta, Twitter, and Facebook at TheAndrewGerza. If you want to follow the podcast specifically, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash DisabilityAfterDark. This show is a completely independent production. I literally record the show here in my bedroom in Toronto, and that's awesome. So if you want to support this fully independent program, you can head over to Patreon.com slash DisabilityAfterDark, and you can pledge $1 a month to get the show early and get really cool perks like that, and I, I will give you a shout-out on the air, and thank you for your support. It would be super awesome if you could also leave a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast so that this show, all about sexuality and disability, something we don't talk about enough, can get more traction and more people can hear about the show. Lastly, if you want to be a part of Disability After Dark, you can submit your suggestions, story ideas, or your minisodes to our email inbox, disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time right here on the program Shining a Bright Light on Sex and Disability, Disability After Dark. New episodes of Disability After Dark will be available every Thursday on your favorite podcast app. Also available to Patreon subscribers one day early on every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations, with music by Chris Sugiuchi. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2019